Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, September 14th, twenty. Another light episode today. We're going to continue with our little mini series from Alistair Begg. And a little bit of a note I will be out of studio next week. Have some matters that I need to tend to. Doing a little traveling, too. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and sadly, there is really no shortage of really bizarre, crazy things being said out there right now. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works over and again. We demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelicals, not at all what God's Word is saying, and there's a lot of deception going on. And part of the way of learning discernment, it's not merely tearing down and critiquing bad teaching, but also uh, listening to what good exegetical teaching sounds like, in-depth biblical study, uh, and uh, good scholarship as it pertains to rightly understanding what is revealed in God's Word. And uh, we just launched into a little mini-series that we're doing, series of sermons delivered by Alistair Begg, and uh, he is a Reformed uh, theologian and pastor, that means he's a Calvinist, and uh, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not Reformed. I'm actually a, a confessional Lutheran. And those of you who wonder, you know, it's like, okay, can, you know, how do we find a Lutheran church or whatever? Uh, look for something that says AALC or Missouri Synod. Avoid the ELCA like it is uh, you know, a leper colony theologically because it is. And, <laughs> and you'll, you'll, you'll at least kind of get into... Uh, you know, the, the a basically better situation than you're currently in if you're looking for something like that. Just want to let you know. But again, not every 
congregation then that uh, is Missouri Synod or AALC. Not every one of them is uh, is necessarily on board with the sound biblical doctrine. You always have to ex- you know exercise discernment when it comes to uh, you know any church that you check out. But anyway, I just want to throw that in there. So we've been listening to Alistair Begg working his way through the passage in Ephesians that talks about slaves obeying masters. And uh, and this is not a popular passage. And you'll note, I have yet to find a megachurch pastor who's ever done a single sermon series uh, on that passage. And you cannot think of a single one who has. And I can only imagine why. But Alistair Begg is not a megachurch pastor. He's just a faithful exegete. And so... Let's uh, head back to his church as uh, we listen to part two, then, of his sermon series titled Slaves and Masters. Here we go. Well, let's turn again to Ephesians, this time to the passage which is before us now in Ephesians chapter 6, and we read from verse 5. Bond servants, or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rending service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Father, grant now that as we turn to the Bible that we might not only understand what it says, but that we might live uh, transformed by grace in the light of its truth. Help us to this end, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as I say, we came out of this week thankful for the opportunity to gather these men from various parts of the country, indeed uh, from around the world. And the reason that it is the conference is still called Basics after 19 years is because we're still focused on the basics. And we were trying to say to one another a number of things that are foundational to the task to which we're called in pastoral ministry, and therefore are central to what it means to gather as a church family when we do as this, uh, as we do on the Lord's Day. And we were reminding one another uh, in the words of one of our speakers, quotes, that the reason we gather in church is first that we may hear and submit to the voice of God in his word. He assembles us by his command, and we assemble to listen to his word. The word of God is the driving force that shapes authentic church life. So much so that unless our first desire when we gather is to hear and heed the voice of God in his word, we have missed the foundation point of the church. And then in the one to whom that individual was curate, uh, in his words, in preaching, the primary aim 
is not to achieve increased biblical understanding, along with a few practical ideas for applying it to life. Often that's what people would say, well, why are we studying the Bible? Well, so you can find out some things, and then hopefully the pastor, the teacher, will be able to give us some practical pointers. No, says the author, the aim is rather that after the text is proclaimed, we will encounter God himself in a life-changing way. In other words, that the word will make a difference, will produce change. In Paul's case, he is seeking to see his listeners recreated in the image of God. So with that as a foundation, as we return to our studies and we go verse by verse and track by track along the way, I found myself challenged by the very things that I've just passed on to you. And I found myself standing back somewhat from the text for that very reason. And as I sat down to uh, write my notes for this, I found myself beginning actually way back with the shorter Scottish Catechism and the very familiar question, and in many cases an equally familiar answer. Question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The first, the foremost commandment, is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when we get up in the morning, if we pay attention to the catechism, and we say to ourselves, now what am I supposed to be doing today? It's Sunday, and uh, I have the day before me. The answer is, my chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him. And how will that glorification take place? Well, in the gathering of God's people, in the hearing and heeding of his word, in the confession of my sins, in the singing of his praise, in my encouragement of those around me. And then how will that translate into Monday? Well, of course, on Monday I won't be in this place. I'll be somewhere else. What am I supposed to do on Monday? After all, I have all those appointments to keep. I've got the places to go. I have so much cleaning to do and so on. Well, on Monday I'm going to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Of course, it raises an immediate problem, doesn't it? And that is because by nature we're not really interested in doing that. Some of you are listening to me and you're saying, what a strange thing. I never once have thought about that. Oh, don't be perturbed. You are surrounded by a great company. I think if we went out from here today, we all scattered and said, let's go out and see if we can find one person in the entire greater community that, who will be able to answer the question, what is the chief end of man? How many do you think we would find? Very, very few. And of those who were able to answer the question, there might be many who said, I haven't the foggiest idea what it means and have never really tried it. Why is that? Well, Paul explains why it is when he writes to the Romans. He says, you see, the reason that God made you is so that you might know him, glorify him, and uh, by nature you don't want to do that. By nature, when you look at humanity, men and women decide they'd rather glorify themselves, please themselves, turn over the idea of a God to whom they are accountable, for whom they ought to, to whom they ought to say thank you for everything, and instead create little substitute gods for themselves. In Rome, of course, there were lots of little gods, that's what they had in the pantheon. 
And there were various places and shrines and and metal objects and uh, creations of man's imagination. We probably are not engaged in that at all, but we do have our own mental gods, substitute gods, that we have to go and do something with to try and unscramble the riddle of our lives to make sense of who and what we are. And just as it led to futility in Rome, so it leads to futility in Cleveland. It leads, actually, to futility everywhere. Because what it does is it explains who and what a man or a woman is before God. And what is that? Well, it's an unpalatable word, but it's the word the Bible uses. Man is, by nature, a sinner. Some time ago, now in the earlier months of the year, I was in a group setting where they were having what they refer to as a Bible study. You could never have guessed because nobody had a Bible at all. And they were talking about different things, but they got into a huge discussion about the nature of sin. And it was absolute chaos. If you had taken all the men and laid them end to end, they couldn't have reached a conclusion between them. And eventually, although I was not there to give any kind of direction at all, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, contain myself. I know you'll be surprised by that, but that's just the facts. And I, and I had to stand up and say, now listen, a sinner is not simply a person who does things that he shouldn't do. But a sinner is primarily a man or a woman who does not live for the glory of God. Who doesn't live for the glory of God. Who doesn't even think about it. Every so often he may think of God because of some happenstance, but by and large it's not even a consideration. Why is that? It is, as Luther says, because we by nature are curved in upon ourselves. We are focused on who we are, what we are, what we want to be, where we're going to go, what we can achieve, and so on. It's perfectly understandable. And it is challenged by the Scriptures. Now, you see, uh, Paul is writing here to people who had come to an understanding of the fact that they were in the wrong with God, They had then discovered that in Jesus they were put in the right with God, and having been put in the right with God, they were no longer in the wrong. It's really quite logical. If you turn, actually, to Ephesians 2 for just a moment, let's remind ourselves of the way in which Paul puts this. He's writing to those at the end of chapter 1 who have, he said, heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and they have believed it. So there has been a message proclaimed that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, that that Jesus has come and borne the punishment that we as sinners deserve, and he has lived the life in perfection of God's law that we are supposed to live but cannot live. And as we take our rest and our trust and our confidence in him, so uh, we find ourselves in, in God's family. But that wasn't the case. Chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, no exceptions, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, by nature children of wrath. Again, notice, like the rest of mankind. Well, then we were stuck. Yes, but God, here's the gospel, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we didn't love him, even when we were dead in our trespasses and therefore could not make ourselves alive, he then made us alive together with Christ. So it's by grace you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. If it were, then you could go out and boast about it. No, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Quite remarkable, isn't it? It's an amazing uh, account of life without Jesus and then life with Jesus. In, In sort of contemporary terms, he describes the fact that we were all living in, on, on dead-end street. Those of you who are of my vintage know the song, Living on Dead-End Street, The Kinks. And Ray Davis, you know, he wrote that. He said it was a social comment on the lower classes of England and a, a statement regarding their, their physical and uh, financial poverty, which, of course, I guess it was. But unwittingly, he made a classic statement of the spiritual condition of man outside of Christ. Because outside of Christ, we're dead men living on dead-end street, trying to make sense of the whole journey of life. Spiritual poverty, you see, is classless. Ray Davis, I think he thought, you know, if we can only fix the poverty, the physical poverty, then everybody will be much better off, will be much happier, and and things will become swimmingly beautiful in England. I I lived in the 60s there. I I go back there in where we are now. uh, And uh, the knife knife killings in London are epidemic. And the problem is not financial poverty. The problem is... These guys are living on dead-end street. They don't know where they came from. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they're going. What is the chief end of man? What is the reason for our existence? That we might glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, Zacchaeus was on dead-end street. Clever little businessman. Nobody liked him. In fact, they hated him so much he had to climb up a tree for his own safety apart from anything else. Jesus brought him off that street. Nicodemus, a religious man, knowing all the right kind of questions, living on Dead End Street. The lady who had five husbands and had a live-in lover, living on Dead End Street. Saul of Tarsus, proud, arrogant, Jewish, intellectual, living on Dead End Street. But God, who is rich in mercy, loved, loved. I I begin in this way this morning because, you see, one of the great dangers in the very practical nature of what we're dealing with is that some may come diligently, 
interestedly and misinterpret or at least misimply what we're doing when we're studying the Bible in this way. We might be tempted to think that what Paul is doing here is he's providing a kind of ethical code which relates in marriage and in the home and now in the workplace. And if we could just get a hold of this and apply it, as it were, from the outside in, then perhaps uh, God, if he is a good God and exists, he will reward us because we're nice people and we're trying our best. Well, no, you see, we're dead people. And we need to be made alive. When Paul, in a summary statement, put it to the Philippians, he said concerning what, what it meant for him, to me, to live is Christ. Six words. To me, to live is Christ. To me, something personal. In my acceptance of Jesus, in my allegiance to Jesus. It's Christ. It is something practical. Every matter may be shared with him. Every moment may be spent with him. Is Christ. It is something possible. Now, I address you in this way this morning because I fear that some of you are not at all in Christ. Oh, you have a nice car and a nice home and a nice job. But you're a dead man or a dead woman. And only Christ can make you alive. And until in Christ we are made alive, then we remain in that condition. And then we do not have the dynamic that is required in order to live the life that is described for us here in the passage to which we now turn. Well, you say, well, hurry up and get to the passage to which we turn. All right. I understand that entirely. Now, what Paul has been saying really since chapter 4 is that being a Christian makes you different. Being a Christian makes you different. I think we ought to just acknowledge that now for once and for all. Some of us are at great pains to explain to our friends, no, we're not different at all. And our friends, if they've concluded that that is an accurate statement, find themselves saying to themselves, so what's the whole point of the Christian thing in the first place? I mean, if it leaves you exactly as you were, as a dead man or a dead woman, why do you do this stuff? So we have to say that what the Bible says about us is what we must acknowledge about ourselves, that, we're, that we are different, that we are peculiar, that we are no longer what we once were. In Jesus, we are different. And that that difference is then manifested not because we all wear funny clothes or are a plastic nose, but because in engaging in the everyday events of life, in marriage and in family and in the workplace, there is a dimension that is ours in Jesus. And that that difference, although it may only be embryonic in many cases, is nevertheless a real difference. And that the whole program of the Christian life is that we would be increasingly conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. So that hopefully in Jesus we're going to be better, better tomorrow at work than we were on Friday when we left work. That it'll be a better husband to my wife uh, to, today on Mother's Day than I was yesterday when I didn't hardly help her at all. That I will be a more obedient boy to my mom than I was when I told her I don't want to make my bed and you're a horrible mother. 
And then it was Saturday, and today's Mother's Day, and you feel so wretched, don't you? And so you should, you little rascal. The fact of the matter is that if you're professing to be a Christian boy or a Christian girl, then you realize God has made you different, and you are to be different by His grace. You see, what is being worked out here is the grace of the gospel. What does the gospel do in a marriage? What does the gospel do in a family? What does the gospel do in a workplace? And if it doesn't do anything, then it's irrelevant. It's transformative. Now, that is why we have tried constantly to make sure that we don't get disengaged from the end of chapter 5, or midway through chapter 5, where Paul is saying to these individuals who are now the followers of Jesus, make sure that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a present continuous tense. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. God the Father has sent Jesus. Jesus has accomplished the work of the Father. He has ascended to heaven. He has sent the Spirit. I will go away, he says to his followers, and the one who comes will be with you and will be in you. And how will that then be manifested? Well, in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and so on. And that will then be revealed in our submissive spirit, a spirit of submission, first of all, to Jesus, and then to the responsibilities within the home, and then to the responsibilities within the workplace. And so it is that we are here in the passage that we began last time, Slaves and Masters. People always ask me for my title. I told them two weeks ago it was called Slaves and Masters 1, and so today is Slaves and Masters 2. I'm very good at that, and I humbly acknowledge it, yes, because I can't think of any good titles. But there we have it. Now, let me do this one slight reverse. Let's acknowledge that the picture, the particulars to which Paul is referring here, are in some senses unique. The particulars that he's addressing are unique. Slaves and masters. We already identify the fact that approximately a third of the Roman Empire was 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 part and parcel of slavery. If you remove slavery from the empire, it would be like removing machinery from the manufacturing industry in the United States of America. The whole thing would be shut down in an instant. And it is in that context that Paul is addressing. Paul could not have removed slavery even if he'd tried. Now, Christianity was regarded as the offscouring of humanity. It had no influence whatsoever. They could not have brought down a system that was so fundamental to the structure of the Roman Empire. That is not to say that the gospel didn't affect it, because it did, but it's just to acknowledge that. And throughout all of history, everyone who has looked on these circumstances has condemned slavery, and for every right reason. Calvin in the 16th century referred to slavery in terms of original sin, the whole notion of enslavement. And he said it is a thing totally against all the order of nature, that human beings fashioned after the image of God should ever be put to such reproach. When a couple of weeks ago we looked in the evening at the little letter of Philemon, we realized there that the gospel radically altered immediately the relationships between slave and master. And if you don't remember, then reread Philemon. It'll only take you a couple of minutes while you're waiting for your soup to cool. The, uh, Paul says to Philemon, he says, I am sending Onesimus back to you. 
no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. I'm sending him back to you as a beloved brother. So you see, the gospel has already begun to undermine the institution of a a context such as that. It took a long time for it to happen, which is a matter of some shame, I think. But we ought to be very, very glad that when eventually slavery is abolished, at the very heart of it is the Bible, is the gospel, and our evangelical Christians such as William Wilberforce. History affirms this. And in most recent terms, in the United States of America, the civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, was clearly driven by his Christian principles in what he did. But I don't want to delay any further on that whole issue itself. It will reward your own uh, consideration. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back, part two of part two of Slaves and Masters by Alistair Begg. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity... Instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. (laughs) You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. 
Give prosperity to babies. They'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you <laughs> holy. <laughs> Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor doesn't engage in in-depth biblical preaching. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, Fighting for the Faith. Dot com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. And rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunter, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. 
Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's uh, lesson, a sermon from Alistair Begg on Ephesians 6 uh, about slaves and masters. Uh, let's continue. Here we go. So the particulars that he's addressing in Ephesus are unique. The principles are timeless. And we will look at some of these principles. We can only start this morning. We can continue later on. The principles apply, as you look at them, to employers and employees in every age. These principles are applicable for you and for me uh, tomorrow in the workaday life. This, I say to you again, is the gospel of grace at work, at work. And the Christian standard, as we see here, for work and service is totally different from earthly and secular notions. Some of you work in human resources. Some of you are involved in representation of various groups within um, the structure either of education or of government or of uh, manufacturing life and so on. And you know that there are all of these things that are sent out to us. And uh, the reason that we have them all and have to pin them all up on the wall is actually because of where we started that we are by nature sinful and therefore selfish. And so governments and agencies then say, this is what you're going to have to do if you all manage to live together properly. But of course, as you know, you can stick those things on the wall. You can actually wear them underneath your T-shirt, but it will not result in you actually living in the light of those truths. This is the grace of the gospel at work, which is at work, first of all, internally. You see, it is, it is an internal transformation that dealt with slavery, and it, it will be an internal transformation that deals with racism. Only on the inside. Only when a man or a woman are changed from the inside. The only real United Nations is a United Nations that is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is making this perfectly clear as he gives his direction. What he does now is he has a section that goes essentially five through eight that we could consider under the heading working for the boss. And then in verse nine, working as the boss, working for the boss. What does he say? Obey your earthly masters sincerely, a proper sense of respect, fulfilling responsibility, and doing a service rendered to Jesus himself. So if we ask the what question, uh, what then are we supposed to do? Number one, obey. Obey. That's an immediate challenge, isn't it? I think just about every single one of us has a problem with doing what we're told. There, there's no instruction being given through, through here in the nursery right now. There's no special little group about how to disobey your mom. No, we're trying to help them to not disobey their mom. Why? Because disobeying their mom comes naturally. Why does it say obey your boss? 
because we don't want to obey our boss. You might find yourself saying, well, what, what made him so special? What, what, what made her so great? Why is she saying this? That's the kind of natural response. I'm pretty clever in myself. I could have worked this out myself. I don't have to have somebody come here on a Monday morning and tell me these are the six things you need to do. In fact, I don't want anybody to come and tell me these are the six things you need to do. Don't tell me which blood tests I have to go through. I'm perfectly trained. Well, you're a Christian. And your boss has got a list for you. And get ready. You know the list is coming. And the gospel will change the way in which you respond to the list. You see, because remember, before you were converted, you were part of that band, that rock and roll band that we read about in Ephesians 2, the sons of disobedience. That's where we lived. That's the music that we played. But now we have been transferred. We're in a new group. We're, we're in the freedom fighters. Not the foo fighters, the freedom fighters. And so as a Christian employee, I am supposed to be exemplary in the way I take direction from my boss. I, I, I take it that that's what that means. Obey your earthly masters. And he's going to go on and qualify that and, and tell us how we obey them. But don't let's go to how just immediately. Let's just go to what. Some of us would make a huge step forward in our witness to the gospel if we would just take direction. If we would just let the person tell us what it is they would like us to do without any immediate feedback, without entering into a discussion group, without coming up with 17 suggestions. Just tell me what you want me to do. Sweep the floor. Got it. Thank you. Do you want me to sweep it this way? Don't start. Just sweep the floor. That's all I had. If I wanted to get, expand on the directions, I would have done so. Now, is this, does this mean then that the boss can tell us to do anything at all and we have to obey it, no matter what he tells us to do? No, it can't be. There are at least three qualifications. One, we cannot obey immoral directives. We cannot obey immoral directives. We have, under God, we have no responsibility to do that which is immoral. So, for example, uh, the, the Hebrew mothers uh, at the time of Moses, the instruction from the authorities in Egypt was, kill these boys. Well, they said, no, we're not going to kill the boys. Why? It would be immoral. So Moses was hid in a basket. That was disobedience. It was disobedience to the authorities. Because the authorities exercised a call to immorality. Some of you are involved in the medical profession. Some of you are involved in obstetrics. Some of you are involved in gynecology. Some of you are involved in all these things. You have got a real challenge in relationship to the question of abortion. Immoral. Also, secondly, if it is idolatrous. Idolatrous. Think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. We build a nice, we build a nice statue here, and, and we're going to have all the employees uh, of, of the household uh, bowing down this afternoon at 3 o'clock. Well, it says you're supposed to obey. Yes, I know, but not idolatry. Why? Because it would be to deny who my real master is. And the same would be true in terms of suppressing the gospel. Think Acts chapter 4. Now, Peter, John, the rest of you, we do not want any more of the Jesus stuff. You, you can go around and do whatever you want to do, but you're not allowed to do the Jesus thing. 
They said, well, you're going to have to judge for yourselves whether it is right for us to obey God or to obey you. He said, well, you've gone very quickly to qualify the categorical nature of obedience. Well, I'm just anticipating the questions. Does this mean categorical obedience? Well, no, not in terms of these three factors. Well, then, if that is what is to happen, how is it to happen? Well, we're going to just begin this, and then we'll have to uh, break off. First of all, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Does this mean that uh, when you go in tomorrow morning and you see your boss, you're supposed supposed to go in like this, you know? (laughs) No, don't be silly, for goodness sake. No. And you may go in like that because he's a threatening boss. Well, that's verse 9, and we'll have to deal with him maybe this evening. But that's not what's in mind here. It's a familiar phrase for Paul, isn't it? In Philippians, he talks about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says when he writes to the Corinthian church that when he arrived in Corinth, uh, he didn't come in like a big shot with a, with a big speech and everything. He said, no, I, I, was, I was with you in weakness and in fear and, and in much trembling. On what basis was this trembling? It was the trembling. He wasn't afraid of the people in Corinth. Actually, the word for fear is the word phobos, which gives us our English word phobia, which, if you think on a continuum, on the one hand, at the far end, it would be absolute terror, and on the other hand, it would mean reverence or respect or love. Earlier in in the passages, in, in terms of marriage, you see that the word fear is far more on this end of the spectrum than it is on this one. So the whole notion of respectfully responding uh, to those who are in authority over us is right here. It's not some kind of paralyzing fearfulness of my master. Rather, a realistic sense of caution about misrepresenting my own master and Lord, Jesus, or a misrepresenting of the gospel itself. So make sure you obey your boss in such a way that you don't misrepresent Jesus, who is your Lord and your master. If you want to have a sense of fearfulness and tremble, tremble about the thought that we may mar our Christian testimony by an attitude of disinterest, rebellion, antagonism. Because after all, remember, uh, our friends and work colleagues have been told by us, presumably, that we have become the followers of Jesus. They perhaps have come to uh, one of the Christmas services with us. And now they're trying to figure out how this Christmas service stuff has flowed into the framework of the life of their employee who is now becoming a kind of standout when it comes to recalcitrance or a spirit of rebellion or a catalyst for disruption within the office. You say, well, you don't know much about this. You don't have a proper job. You've never had a proper job. No, I've had a lot of proper jobs. And uh, 
I, I, I think I understand this. And I certainly understand the difference between a sincere heart and an insincere heart. Between, if you like, eye service and heart service. In other words, when I worked as a gardener, please do not laugh, when I worked as a gardener one summer, if you had seen me at any point, if you had seen me very industriously involved, you, would be, you could safely assume that the, the, the boss was somewhere at a vantage point who could see me. If you could see me not particularly industrious, you could pretty well guarantee that the boss had gone off to see his mother-in-law or something. And you would be able to assume, if you looked at me, his heart is not in it. His heart's not in it. There's something of that here in this exhortation. A fearfulness lest I mar the testimony of Christ, and with a sincerity of heart that is not concerned simply to impress the individual when they're present, or to do as little as I can when they're not present, but actually is exercising from the very core of my being. And not because I totally love the stuff, but because I love Jesus. You see, because people say, well, it's okay if you've got a nice job and everything, you get to go out, you have business lunches and things like that. But what about the fact that I'm here and I'm putting these plastic pots together and I'm supposed to do 85 of them every four and a half minutes and they come through that production line. It's just the same. And it goes like this. You get a 20-minute break, you go over, have a coffee, you come back and you do it again and again and again and again. It's absolute drudgery. It's mindless. It's okay for you. It's okay for her. Does it apply? Of course it applies. Because that's the place of God's appointing. And there's no ideal place to serve God except the place he puts you. Now, when we begin to grasp that, then we realize what an amazing thing it is. In just a phrase, when I realize that it is Christ I am serving. I remember when I would go and do visitation for Uh, Derek Prime, way back, 75, 76, the early part of 77. And I would go and I would visit uh, uh, people in in nursing homes, in in hospitals. Uh, Some of them were were barely compass mentis. Um, I I could give you chapter and verse, but anyway, accept that from me. And so I would go in there, in in the ward, you know those wards, and I would go down the corridor, and I would then sit at the lady's bed, and she, she, was, she wasn't there. And so I would stay for a bit, and then I would read a part of the Bible, and then I would pray, and then I would leave. And I remember one of the staff meetings, we were having a staff meeting, and I said to my boss, I said to Derek, I said, you know what, I don't think I'm going to those things anymore. I don't do any of those. He said, why not? I said, well, Mrs. X, she doesn't even know I'm there. Nobody cares. He said, you don't get it, do you? Inasmuch as you have ministered to one of the least of these, my brethren, you have ministered unto me. He said, this is for Christ that you do this. This is for the gospel that you do this. This is not related to how much satisfaction you receive from it. 
because it is Christ they're serving. You see the radical difference that this transformation makes in an employee. What it argues for is that Christian employers ought to be, on the one hand, fascinated by our our testimony if we're given opportunity to proclaim it, but way and beyond that, absolutely convinced when they go home at night, there's not a better worker in this place than Miss X. I don't know why it is. Her job's the same every day. She has a spring in her step. She has a light in her eye. She's the helpful person. She's first on the thing. She never skips off early. I don't know what her problem is. Maybe it's that Jesus stuff. See? See, because let's not get this upside down, church. Our greatest potential is not when we're here. It's when we're not here. My job and your job is not to live in such a way that when it comes time to invite somebody to a Christmas program, they will actually come. That's a good thing to do. But have you seen how many of them come back? Have you seen all the effort that's involved? In, in, In business terms? For what kind of return? But it's good to do it. We love to do it. But no, your greatest impact is where I can't go. I can't go in your place. I'm not allowed in your lab. I'm not in that library. I don't have a job in a bank. I don't make calls on people's homes. I'm stuck here with this group for crying out loud. And they're stuck with me. Because we live in a little bubble. But you're out there. You've got one of those bosses. You've got a verse 9 boss. You've got a fantastic opportunity. I'm envious. I'm envious. Tell me, what's it really like going to work? You think about this congregation. Three times over, one more in the evening, scattered in greater Cleveland. Not with a bunch of tracks. Not the bumper stickers, just husbands loving their wives, wives submitting to their husbands, just children obeying their mom and dad, and parents not provoking their children to wrath, just employees showing up in time with a smile on their face, and employees, employers who don't threaten their employees and act like a tyrannical rascal. The people are going, what the world is this about? The difference. Do you know George Herbert's poem, The Elixir? With this I close, where he writes, Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in everything, to do it as for thee. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that and the action fine. I will come back to this. Father, write your word in our hearts. Help us in this. Bring us, Lord, from a broadened road that leads to destruction onto the narrow road that leads to life. Move us by your grace from dead end street into the realm where life
and life in all of its fullness is found in Jesus. And then help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to increasingly be conformed to the image of Jesus who did not come to be served but to serve and gave his life as a ransom for many. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till a week from now, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.